from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Wednesday, June 2nd. Today, the fight over voting, a history of protesting police brutality, and demystifying HIPAA. In 2020, we faced a tireless assault on the right to vote. Restrictive laws, lawsuits, threats of intimidation, voter purges, and more. So on Tuesday, President Biden traveled to Tulsa to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, in which hundreds of Black Tulsa residents were killed. And he took the opportunity to demand congressional action on voting rights. That's Amy Gardner. She covers voting for The Post. You got voters to the polls. The rule of law held. Democracy prevailed. We overcame. But today, let me be unequivocal. As for the act of voting itself, I urge voting rights groups in this country to begin to redouble their efforts now to register and educate voters. There are two bills currently pending in Congress that would shore up voting rights across the country. And he announced that Vice President Harris would be the person in his administration who's going to take the lead pressing for passage of these bills. Across the country, Republican-controlled legislatures are considering and in many cases passing legislation that adds new barriers to voting. One such measure actually was defeated in Texas over the weekend, where Democrats staged a walkout as a bill called Senate Bill 7 was about to be approved. Just minutes before a midnight deadline, Texas Democrats headed for the exits. Their walkout from the House floor derailed, at least temporarily, a controversial new voting law that would affect millions. And by walking out, they sort of triggered a procedural problem for the Republicans by denying them the necessary quorum. There needs to be two-thirds of the legislature present in order to act. And so the bill died. And that drama that unfolded over the Memorial Day weekend was also accompanied by some pretty sharp rhetoric from Texas Democrats to national Democrats, which is, we don't even control government. And look what we did. It's time for you guys to step up, too. And I think that that may have prompted the president to focus as heavily as he did on Tuesday on voting rights in Tulsa. And tell me about this bill in Texas. If it were to be passed, what would it actually do? So the measure that was under consideration in Texas proposed a raft of new restrictions on voting. They included uh, making it illegal for election officials to send out unsolicited mail ballot applications, empowering partisan poll watchers to be able to get really up close to voters while they're voting, which has this potential to allow for intimidating behavior, banned a bunch of practices that were instituted last year to help people vote during the pandemic, particularly in heavily Democratic Harris County, where Houston is. So drop boxes would have been banned. Drive-through voting would have been banned. 
and it would have prevented early voting to begin earlier than 1 p.m. on Sundays, which was considered a shot at souls to the polls, which is this get out the vote effort that targets black churchgoers to go straight to voting right after they're done with church on the couple of Sundays ahead of election day. And so all of it was seen by voting rights advocates and Democrats as a direct rebuke of the efforts to expand voting access in ways that specifically helped Democratic communities and communities with large communities of color to cast their ballots. So by walking out over the weekend, does this mean that the bill in Texas is dead? It means it's dead for now. Whether it comes back is a very interesting question. I don't know the answer, but I I do think there are some interesting forces to pay attention to. Governor Greg Abbott, who has been a champion of passing voting legislation, very quickly said after the legislature adjourned without taking action on uh, Sunday, stated that he was going to add voting to the special session that he's planning to call later this year in order to redraw the state's political districts once the census data is available. What's interesting, though, is that Abbott did not say, oh, really, you're going to play these games? So am I. I'm calling a special session just for voting and you're coming back tomorrow, which would have been the most aggressive thing that he could have done and had the power to do. Why he didn't do that has been the subject of some speculation. The other interesting uh, factor here is that Republican Speaker Dade Phelan knew the Democrats were planning to walk out if all else failed. They told him this in a closed-door meeting earlier Sunday. And Phelan had the power as Speaker of the House in Texas to order the sergeant-at-arms to lock the doors and not let anybody leave. It's actually in the House rules. If they had left, to send the Texas Department of Public Safety out and arrest people who were absent without excuse and bring them back. Why didn't he do that? I mean, there's a couple of different possibilities. Not great optics to bring people back at gunpoint to vote on a voting bill, but also a lot of speculation in Austin and actual knowledge that Phelan didn't love this bill. A lot of Republicans don't love these bills that they're feeling compelled to vote for by their constituents who believe the rhetoric coming from former President Trump about the election in 2020 having been stolen, who fear primary challenges from more pro-Trump candidates um, when they come up for re-election. Trump put out a statement endorsing Greg Abbott for his reelection next year. And so you can see the cause and effect of why Republicans feel compelled to publicly support these bills, even as some of them have privately said, I don't love this. As you said, a lot of the state lawmakers in Texas are explicitly calling out the U.S. Congress to step in and help. But what is it that they actually want? Congress to do? So there are two bills in Congress that Democrats across the country want them to approve. One is called For the People Act, and it's a big, sweeping, omnibus election reform bill 
The Constitution gives the states the power to administer elections, but it also allows Congress to step in and pass laws regulating elections anytime it wants as well. And so what Democrats want are some national minimum standards, basically to prevent the kind of laws that are being passed around the country right now and to prevent the kinds of challenges that happened last year when election administrators tried to take steps to make it easier to vote during the pandemic. So it would mandate a minimum number of early voting hours. It would mandate universal mail balloting. It would require absentee ballot applications be sent to every registered voter. And what Democrats are saying is that if that bill doesn't pass, we're just going to see more of these bills at the state level and it's going to get worse and it's time for Congress to act. And they say the same thing about the other bill, which is known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It's a reauthorization of the historic 1965 Voting Rights Act, which has to get reauthorized periodically. It's interesting. It's worth noting that in the 2000s, when it was up for reauthorization last, it passed unanimously. But in the intervening years, some portions of the Voting Rights Act were struck down by the Supreme Court, notably a section that requires certain jurisdictions, states, counties, with histories of race-based voter suppression to seek preclearance from the United States Justice Department before they can make any changes to election administration, like closing polls, changing state laws, adding poll locations. But is it possible for state lawmakers to step in and stop these laws on a state-by-state level? Or, I mean, does Congress really need to step in? I think that what the Texas Democrats did in the House on Sunday was notable and sent a message to other Democrats around the country that perhaps they have more power than they realize. Democrats are in the minority in both the House and Senate. They don't control the governor's office in Texas. And yet here they managed to block major legislation that was a top priority of the Republican Party in Texas. And so certainly other Democrats around the country are being given notice by these Texas Democrats. You've got more power than you realize, and it's time for you to step up. On the other hand, is breaking a quorum a sustainable strategy to block all legislation every time? Maybe not. I think that there's an argument that it's not it's not a sustainable way to govern, to set policy. Their argument in this case was that it was the only recourse they had. They asked Republicans to work with them to make the bill better, to make their case for why they believed the bill was unfair and discriminatory, and the Republicans weren't interested. But as a matter of regular practice, I think public opinion would eventually start to frown on a party basically walking out every time they didn't like a bill. That's not really the way the process is supposed to work all the time. It's a tool. It's it's legal. It's in the rules. The quorum is a tool. But is it sustainable over the long term in state legislatures? Probably not. Amy, what are the kinds of challenges that we're seeing for federal legislation having to do with voting rights ahead? The big challenge for federal legislation is the filibuster in the Senate, which requires legislation such as this 
to go through a procedural vote requiring 60 senators before it can go to the floor for consideration. And that means 10 Republicans because the Senate is 50-50 and the Republicans are opposed to both of these voting bills that I mentioned. And so the question is whether the Democrats who control the Senate with the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Harris are going to be willing to get rid of the filibuster as that procedure is known. They could abolish the filibuster. It's not enshrined in law or in any judicial decision. It's just a rule of the Senate that could be eliminated with an up or down vote. So there is one senator in particular, Joe Manchin, a conservative Democrat from West Virginia, which is a very Republican state, who is opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. And that's a big hurdle for the party. Without Manchin's support, it's a big hill to climb. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. A year after George Floyd's death and the protests that followed, we are still trying to figure out how to process and define what we saw in the streets across the U.S. So we turned to Yale historian Elizabeth Hinton. I think the events of 2020 made clear that we've been living in the aftershocks of the extreme violence of the 1960s and 70s. So places like Watson, 1965. With a tremendous amount of damage that was done to the area, somewhere in excess of $250 million, it became difficult for the citizens who were living in the area to continue any kind of normal activity and Detroit and Newark during what's known as the long, hot summer of 1967. The hundreds of cities that erupted after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April 1968. Washington looks like a city at war, and it is. There are something like 4,000 troops in the city, and tanks rumble through the streets. And this form of protest endured through the remainder of the 20th century in places like Miami in 1980 and, of course, the Los Angeles Rebellion of 1992, which was the largest and most destructive in American history, and the lesser-known rebellion in Cincinnati in 2001. The fatal police shooting of a 19-year-old African-American during a chase sparked the explosion which really represented this transition point to the protests that we've seen emerging more recently, beginning with Ferguson in 2014 and stretching to Minneapolis and Portland and Seattle and other cities in the summer of 2020. Again, a fourth night of protest after the death of George Floyd. Multiple buildings went up in flames. Hinton is the author of a new book, America on Fire. The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. My most recent book thinks about how Black communities in particular responded to the expansion of policing and surveillance in their communities. So it's thinking about how did residents on an everyday basis resist the presence of police officers in their daily lives. She spoke with our host, Martine Powers. 
So it's been a year since the protests in Minneapolis, right, and the demonstrations after the death of George Floyd. And I feel like that was a very complicated moment in seeing people, and especially white people, respond to these protests. I heard a lot of people saying, Yes, I agree with why they're protesting. You know, the video of this of this officer and this person dying is awful, but I don't believe in the destruction of property and I don't believe in starting fires and I don't believe in rioting. And looking back a year later, I'm wondering what do you think is missing from how people were understanding those protests? Well, first of all, I think we need to emphasize that the vast majority of the protests last summer were completely nonviolent and that all of the protests that did end up leading to those fires, to property destruction, to attacks on police officers and to looting happened after police intervened during nonviolent protests or peaceful vigils. So that's part of it. The other is that we really need to understand this form of political violence as rooted in the very same demands as nonviolent protests in general, but the civil rights movement in particular. You know, these rebellions, as I call them, are related to larger socioeconomic conditions in low-income communities of color. We have to reckon with the larger issues that are driving people to feel like they have no other recourse but to take to violent actions in order for their demands to be heard. I also want to ask about the language that you use when you talk about these moments. Um, I remember last summer, even on our team making the podcast, we had this conversation about, like, what are we going to call what's happening in Minneapolis? We don't want to call it a riot. But also, is this a protest? Does protest capture what's happening here? And I've noticed that you use the term rebellion, which I find very interesting. What is the language that you think people should be using when they talk about these moments? Part of the reason why I use rebellion is because that's how many of the residents who engaged in this form of political violence understood their own action. They didn't call themselves rioters. They saw themselves as as rising up. And the other is to help us get out of the dangerous cycle that the term riot leaves us in, you know, which is that if you respond to a set of political demands as criminal, then the only response is the police, which is, of course, the very institution that residents are uh, rebelling against. So we're kind of stuck in this cycle where by labeling these protests as riots or criminal, the only solution then becomes more police, which ends up exacerbating the problem, not solving it. I think that throughout American history, when we've seen like, quote unquote, riots by black people, that there is a sense that there is something chaotic about it or disorganized or lawless. And I wonder why is it that they are not viewed as political acts? I think part of it has to do with how we think about protests and what kinds of protests is considered legitimate by state authorities. So protests for racial justice have been consistently criminalized throughout our history. This is, of course, in contrast to the mob violence that has defined the fabric of the United States. I mean, certainly from Reconstruction onwards, when white vigilante mobs, often with the support and complacency of of local police, rioted and massacred and destroyed black communities throughout the United States. I mean, on the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, where a white mob, many of whom were deputized by the county government, literally destroyed the thriving Greenwood community. And it wasn't until... 
the mid-1960s when black people began to engage in collective violence against exploitative and exclusionary institutions, that these actions became seen as rioting. So I think there's a tendency to see any calls for racial justice as somehow criminal, as somehow delegitimate. And, and this has then framed not only the way that we understand these protests, but also the set of responses that are then implemented. Because we saw during the entirety of the Black Lives Matter movement that there are these comparisons drawn between what protesters are doing on the streets and the history of the civil rights movement or like this sanitized history of the civil rights movement. And people say, well, you know, what about nonviolent protests? What about sit-ins and boycotts? And like those things are very different from the things that we saw in Minneapolis that people think are violent or scary. And so I guess what would you say to this idea of, well, violent forms of protest are not in keeping with the legacy of the civil rights movement? Yeah, I mean, so that's just a false interpretation. I I think one thing that that often gets overlooked is that both nonviolent and violent protests have been entwined and central to the success of the Black freedom movement historically. Martin Luther King Jr. himself understood that part of the success of his own branch of nonviolent protest depended on the threat of violent rebellion should nonviolent demands not be met. And I think we see this again last summer. And it wasn't until the fires of 2020 and the mass mobilization, again, the entanglement between both violent and nonviolent forms of protest that the national conversation really accelerated. And now conversations about police reform are on the table in a way that they haven't been since the 1960s. And those moments of violent action are the parts that are like stripped out of how we are taught the civil rights movement. And I think how especially white communities want to think about it, that it's like the moments that were violent are considered anachronistic to the actual movement itself, rather than like a profound part of what made the sit-ins and the boycotts more powerful and effective. Yeah, it challenges the conventional narrative. And when these rebellions peaked from 68 to 72, there were some 2000 rebellions that occurred during that period. And I think the sheer fact of violence, the extreme violence that really defined so many segregated low-income communities in the late 60s and and early 1970s forces us to reckon with some of the shortcomings of the civil rights movement that challenge the linear narrative of progress that we like to tell about where we are in terms of racial equality and political and economic development in the United States because so many of these rebellions were fueled by a generation of young people who had watched the civil rights movement unfold throughout their childhoods and by the late 1960s felt that their conditions hadn't changed much. And on top of it, they were being policed in new ways as a result of the programs of the war on crime. So the dominant protests, the dominant civil rights protests begins to shift after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, especially from the politics of nonviolence to the politics of self-defense. And and we've really failed to notice this important shift and its implications for the continued embrace of policing and, and surveillance in targeted low-income communities of color. 
You also said that the role of police in either instigating or exacerbating or intensifying moments of rebellion or protest or nonviolent or violent action, that we don't understand how police are part of what happens. Can you talk more about how we've seen that historically play out and how that continues to be the dynamic now? Yeah, so it's it's part of this, what I call this cycle. And for that, you know, we can look at just the ways in which, especially in the 60s and 70s, many of these rebellions unfolded. So part of the strategy for the war on crime, which began in 1965, was to arrest potential rioters or potential criminals. That was the, and still is in many ways, the, the kind of strategy for crime control, preventing crime or unrest or disorder before it occurs by identifying individuals who might participate in such acts. And most of the rebellion started in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activities, you know, as in Albuquerque, New Mexico. A group of Mexican-American teenagers were hanging out in a park and the police came and arrested several of the teenagers. And in response to that arrest, residents responded by throwing rocks and bottles back at the police officers. And then the police officers in turn responded by calling for backup. So more police force on the scene, then more residents come out and the violence then escalates on both sides. The police start using tear gas. They start arresting people and residents then respond to that police violence with more violence. The National Guard was called. People responded with sniper fire and overturning police vehicles and the escalation of police force then escalates community violence. And we see this cycle playing out again and again. So there's the kind of like literal cycle that happens in moments of rebellion. And then the policy cycle, of course, because in the aftermath of rebellion, the response on the part of state institutions is not to provide the jobs and educational resources and new housing opportunities that people are demanding, but more police and more surveillance, which then makes rebellion even more likely. That, that when you view these moments as criminal acts, then the solution to them is to put in more police to to squash any criminality. Yes, exactly. You know, I, I feel like I had a lot of conversations with people during the Derek Chauvin trial where you know, as we were waiting to find out what the verdict was going to be and how the jury was going to come down. Um, I, I heard a lot of people say, like, I really hope he gets convicted because I think that what he did was very wrong. And also, I'm very scared about what will happen if he doesn't get convicted and what the consequences of that will be. And that just struck me as, like, fear of violent demonstrations, like, is a powerful motivator, whether you, you know, agree with them or not. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that when people pursue the nonviolent channels, their demands aren't heard and aren't listened to. And so they're forced to resort to violence. The ideal situation would be that people just do the right thing the first time that people respond to protests and that people don't criminalize protests for civil rights and racial justice. We really need to begin to kind of rethink what the purpose and function of police are and to rely on other social services and social welfare institutions to perform much of this work. As over the course of the late 20th century, social welfare programs, mental health programs, youth empowerment programs have been scaled back or divested from, the police have really become, as one police chief 
told me recently, social workers with guns and police aren't trained to be social workers. We need actual social workers. We need actual members from the community to be able to de-escalate situations that may lead to social harm or violence. So I think we're beginning to have conversations about how we can move beyond the police in fostering public safety and look to some of our other institutions, which tend to be way more cost effective and successful in actually preventing crime and violence in our communities. Elizabeth Hinton is a historian at Yale University and the author of America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. This story was produced by Sabby Robinson. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, one more thing from producer Renny Svernofsky. So, Allison Chu, wellness reporter for The Post, you've been covering pandemic-related matters all year and dispelling myths throughout that. What's something you've seen pop up lately that you want to get cleared up? One of the things that I consistently been seeing, especially since the vaccines rolled out, is that a lot of people really don't know how HIPAA, a uh, federal privacy law, works. We've been noticing confusion about HIPAA among everyday Americans online, as well as some of our readers who have been writing into us, and with people in positions of power, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been posting and speaking publicly, claiming that asking or requiring proof of vaccination is a violation of HIPAA, which is incorrect, according to the experts that we've spoken with. So let's just start with the basics. What is HIPAA? HIPAA is essentially a federal law that protects a person's identifying health information from being shared without their knowledge or consent. One of the most important things to remember about HIPAA is that it's a prohibition against sharing, not a prohibition against asking about medical information. So what the law protects is that it makes sure that covered entities, which include insurance providers, medical providers, any of their business associates are prevented from sharing your identifiable personal health information without your knowledge or consent. The law doesn't mean that you never have to share your personal health information with anyone who asks. So does that mean that my favorite restaurants or shops can ask for my vaccination status? Absolutely. Really anyone can ask you for your vaccination status. They wouldn't be in violation of HIPAA just simply for asking, even if they are an insurance provider, doctor, or any of the quote unquote covered entities that we just talked about. And this might be belaboring the point, but what about schools or my workplace? Can they ask or share? Schools and workplaces can definitely ask you about your vaccination status. There may be other federal and state confidentiality laws that could require employers or schools to protect your privacy from sharing your vaccination status, but they can definitely ask. 
However, all these people that we've just talked about, whether it's your employer or a business or a restaurant that you're going to, they can all ask you personally for your information, but they couldn't call up your doctor or your medical provider and ask them for your vaccination record. If the doctor or the medical provider did share that information, they would be in violation of HIPAA. And if someone asks me about my vaccination record, do I have to answer them? You can always decline to share your vaccination status. That is absolutely your right, and there are no laws that would force you to give up that information. But keep in mind that since a majority of states right now don't have laws prohibiting businesses from refusing service based on your vaccination status, there might be consequences if you decide not to disclose what your vaccination status is. And then if I want to know someone's vaccination status for whatever reason, maybe I'm going on a trip with them or, you know, I'm serving them at a restaurant or something like that. How can I ask for it in a respectful and considerate way? Any tips? The biggest thing is just to be transparent and honest about why you would like to know someone's vaccination status. It would be really helpful if you could as an employer or a business, explain to the person that you're asking, you know, what is the information that you're gathering from them and what will it be used for and how? And if you're being asked and you feel a little bit uncomfortable about those questions, you know, don't hesitate to ask some questions of your own, you know, about what the information will be used for and, um, you know, how your answer will affect you. Allison Chu is a wellness reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernofsky, who also mixed today's show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On yesterday's show, we reported that star tennis player Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open on Sunday. It was actually Monday. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.